Welcome back to the Earn Your Edge podcast. I'm Corey Lundberg from Altus Performance. And to celebrate the return of the European tour and this week's British Masters, we are very excited to share our recent chat with one of our favorite players in all of golf. He's a two-time guest now and a former British Masters champ, Eddie Pepperell. We recorded this just a few weeks into the lockdown, and Eddie was gracious enough to spend an hour with us. And I am always eager to hear anything that, that Eddie has to say. He's always thoughtful always entertaining and almost always makes me laugh and he did not disappoint the last 10 minutes especially are probably my favorite there's a couple good stories in there that despite some very strong language we couldn't edit out and we kept in there so stay tuned for that and there's plenty to keep you engaged until then eddie is obviously known for his sense of humor but that razor sharp wit that he has is really just an expression of his intelligence. And you're about to hear some real wisdom from a guy whose view of golf and how to get better and stay better. I I really respect and admire. He's figured out what works for him and to hear him discuss that is really helpful to me as a coach. And I know it'll be helpful to you as a player as well. So please enjoy episode 72 of the earn your edge podcast with Eddie Pepperell. One other thing that I wanted to touch on before we kind of really kick things off and get into the golf conversation is the, with the the extra time that we have on our hands and the DIY nature of, I think, any golfer that kind of spends their life uh, working on their own game and figuring things out along the way, the trial and error, the experiential learning that we go through. This question comes from the do-it-yourself kind of frame. And I noticed on uh, on Twitter just a few weeks back, or maybe just a few days back, the picture of your car washing and how you were kind of demoralized as to the difficulty that you encountered when um, looking at your finished product. I'm wondering if, if there was anything else that's come to come to pass out of uh, a do-it-yourself effort where you realized, oh, hmm, that's a bit more difficult than I first anticipated it would be. Well, it's funny because that was like the first day of lockdown for us. I tried that and I was genuinely excited. I was looking forward to it. That did such a shit job. I mean, I, I just <laughs> couldn't believe how badly it went and how easy a job it is, really. I just got it so wrong, and I thought I was doing it right. Clearly not. And then since then, I've done nothing, like nothing creative. So um, it wasn't that that put me off. I just think I got bored after one day. The idea of it was just, you know, the shut ship sailed very quickly. The idea that I could be creative in this period. No, no, it's gone the opposite way, unfortunately for me. As we've had this quiet time, I'm wondering if there's anything that surprises you that you miss about European tour life. And I say that because as we're getting ready to chat with you again, you know, we did this a couple of years ago and we had a lovely lakeside dinner in Northern Italy. And I'm thinking about all those kind of interactions and conversations that I don't really think of top of mind when I'm thinking about how I miss tournament golf and going to events and stuff like that, but it is a big part of it. And it, it, those interactions and the social part of it, I miss a lot. Is there anything that has come up over the last few weeks? He says, you know what? I I actually, I haven't thought about that much, but I really do miss that part of playing. I think it's interesting because I mean, I mentioned there that I've not been at all creative and I think, I mean, I'm not sure about this, but I I think it almost highlights how I'm much more competitive than creative. And I'm curious as to know if other golfers and other sportsmen feel the same, you know, because I'm looking at it and I just, I feel like I have no energy to be creative in any way, but I'm, I'm really itching for that competition. And, you know, that's competition, not just with other guys, but competition with yourself. You know, you alluded to it, Cameron, a minute ago, the, the learning, you know, the trial and error of every day on the golf course, just experiencing swing patterns, shot patterns, all these things that just send you to bed every night thinking I'm missing that. I'm missing the daily feedback of the grind of golf, professional golf. So, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. And also the social side, you know, I'm looking forward to a few events that hopefully are still going to go ahead, like Portugal, where it's always a good social, good dinner with friends, you know, and I'm looking forward to some of those events. Dunhill Links is another one like that. Yeah, I think that that it, it could reveal a lot about your relationship with golf. And it, if I could just ask you to reflect a little bit, because that's, the response that we're hearing from a lot of players is one, it's like some of them say, I miss golf so much. I can't believe how much I love golf and where others are just kind of lacking the motivation because there's not that next event on the schedule. And so they're having to reflect with that relationship and and how they see and feel about golf. And I think that in my opinion, it's from, you've got these guys that have sacrificed so much of their daily lives to just immerse themselves in golf for their entire life. And now they're kind of living the lives that the rest of us do where we're 
we're mere mortals and that's not there. And so, you know, maybe for some, it, it requires some reflection and reprioritizing some things uh, as they make their way through this break. Yeah, I think that's interesting. And um, I don't know. I don't know how I... I'm not yearning for golf necessarily. Does that make sense? Like, I know I'm a golfer, so, you know, I'm, I'm going to be playing golf. That's my life. But I'm almost yearning for the lifestyle. I'm yearning for the monotony, ironically, of that lifestyle. You know, the... The structure. The structure, yeah. The invisible structure that is there. It's like being at school, you know. It's like you, when there's a structure in place, you have to put it in place and it gives you that purpose where it's not there. I have had times in my life where I've been very good at putting it there. I mean, because, you know, I've had many years when you're just turned pro when you're an amateur, then you have this natural kind of three to four month break, say, through the winter. And I used to, I got very good at filling that time as I probably passed the age of 18. But obviously, probably over the last five or six years, I haven't had to do that because of the the nature of the European tour schedule. And well, of course, the PGA tour as well. So it just rolls and rolls. And so you don't have to worry about that. And now all of a sudden, you're faced with this empty period. Obviously, it's made doubly worse because you, you can't literally go out and do anything. So, you know, it's a it's a double whammy. But um, yeah, it's uh, it, it's certainly interesting. It does highlight how reliant you become. That's always what I remembered with school and the English Golf Union. It was great that it was there. But when it wasn't there, it really opened your eyes to, oh, God, you know, you've got to put these structures, these flaws in place. And that, and that does require quite a bit of effort. But when the European tour comes back, I think that it's just generally accepted that it's going to come back under a little bit more modest conditions as that relates to the perks and the the tournament amenities, even the purses. And I would guess that what we'll find out is that there have been some unnecessary luxuries that you don't necessarily need that won't really take much away from the experience of, of playing the event. But is there anything that you have on your list as far as perks go? that you would say, man, if they took that away, I would actually miss that. I, I wouldn't want that to have to go away. For me personally, I'm not that bothered. I mean, when it comes to players lounges and courtesy cars, and these are the two things that come to my mind straight away. And they were mentioned in an email as, you know, being two things that are likely going to missing. And for me personally, like, you know, there's a lot of tournaments where I catch Ubers to, to the events. In fact, I did the last time I played. There's a lot of tournaments where I don't even I barely eat in the players' lounge because, well, at the moment, all I'm eating is animal products. That's, that's going to get even stranger for me. But, um, you know, so for me personally, it's not a big issue. I've always been quite autonomous on that front anyway, and I would much rather we try and protect some prize funds um, than, you know, worry about those things. And, and then you've got issues like crashes and stuff like this. You know, that's, that's all going to go, I suspect. And listen, you would have seen it as well, Corey, for sure, is that, you know, in recent years, I've I've seen the deterioration happen anyway with lots of events on the European Tour. You know, we, we have now got more of a graded structure and, and that can be seen in, in terms of the Rolex Series events and some of the other events that have this amazing infrastructure and then many don't, quite frankly. So it's already been happening. And I think there's been some real economic woes in parts of Europe anyway that have added to that. And now we're seeing that move across into the middle east and and well and frankly probably everywhere but uh you know i've i'm generally you know for a while i've been looking at the situation more in terms of a macro sense not just in terms of golf looking at the world and thinking how does that equate to the quality or the the amount of golf we play for what prize funds around the world in the middle east or asia and you know you probably over time it takes quite an objective view i suppose and a historical view but um you know i suppose it'll be obvious in the future when we look back but things have been changing and they're just going to change even more now for us i think unfortunately I'm thinking as it relates, and Cameron and I are thinking as it relates to player support and how that changes on site at events. And it's an interesting hypothetical to think how it may affect uh, the competition, if if at all. And I'm curious if you have a prediction. Let's say there's a hypothetical where there's no agents, there's no coaches. I, I even would be a more extreme version of this hypothetical is if there's no caddies, which I know is not going to happen, but it's an interesting thought project to think of how that then affects certain players more so versus others. I'm trying to think in my mind, well, who wins in that scenario where there's there's a huge restriction on player support? Yeah, that's a good one, isn't it? I think Tiger probably wins. <laughs> I think it's a great thought experiment to put on yourself personally, you know, for every one of us to look actually inwardly and say, hang on a minute, if this is my new going to be my new reality, how am I going to cope with that? You know, you're you're almost creating your own austerity to wake you up and to ignite some 
thinking and and you know the human spirit is when you're faced with that scenario you react and you adapt for good or for for worse and you know most well you hope for good but of course there are going to be some guys who are going to realize pretty soon they'll have become so reliant on this person or that person and I suppose I can only speak for myself but over the last few years certainly in some areas I would say technically speaking at least with my swing you know I have taken on a lot more ownership and so things like that you know, I know would put myself in maybe an a, a okay spot compared to maybe some guys, but um, you're going to have varying degrees across all, you know, structures, aren't you, I suppose, in, in all kind of ways. But yeah, you look at guys like Rory and, and for me, I'd see a lot of autonomy in Rory and people like that. I don't see much reliance on other people. So that's what you want to build. And and this this time might be the sign of success for those even more so. Yeah, you offer a nice segue into a conversation on technique and also coaching. You talk about ownership and ownership should be the goal of any person that's guiding someone towards a um, a pursuit and endeavor that's largely, well, principally individual. You know, you've got the caddy riding shotgun with you, but you're the one that's ultimately the person that's dealing with the psychology of playing the game as well as the physical piece of executing the shot. So the two-part question that I have is, as you've taken ownership, what are those cues that you have been paying attention to, let's say, over the last six months and will you continue to pay attention to as you ramp up for competitive play again? And then a follow-up question to that is, if you were to reflect on kind of that filtering process that you went through in selecting a coach as it stands to inform players out there when they're thinking through what sort of coach should I be looking for that can guide me to become the best version of myself, whether that version of themselves is playing on a European or a PGA tour um, year in, year out. So, you know, for me, much of my my whole technical process really stems back to what happened in 2017 for me. And, um, you know, when I lost my card in 2016 and, and really did get lost with my game, I decided at the beginning of 2017, therefore, to take a lot more ownership, as you mentioned, and look at it myself and finally say to my coach at the time, you know what, I've had enough. I'm going to just I'm going to just think about it myself a bit more and come up with something. And I came up with a couple of drills in a short, pretty short space of time that are still with me to this point. And and they're kind of. If I'm a helium balloon, they're the stones that keep me grounded. At least that's how I feel about it, you know. And so they are very, very important to me and um, they will always be there. And they're the kind of things I do religiously even now. And I'm looking forward thinking how much time do I need to give myself to ingrain those moves. But they're they're the kinds of things that stay pretty well ingrained. So, um, you know, I took more and more ownership as 2017 went on and then I began to use my coach. So, I mean, I used an analogy that I came up with a week ago or a metaphor, which I quite liked actually, and it seemed to work is I, I began to push the trolley around the supermarket instead of be the trolley. And then you're filling it up with the things you want to fill it up with. And that's ultimately how you have to live your life and how you have to use your, and live your career and, and, and move forward. And, and I've done a better job of that. I think. And so that, that whole process puts me in a decent spot now. And, and I've been very reliant on that and pertaining more towards my more recent coach who I worked with probably now for two years, you know, and and my deal with him was to provide me with a bit of structure that I would occasionally not see more fundamental structure in terms of setup, posture, ball position, things like this, which is something I never, ever focus on. It's something I never think about. So there was things that I knew were important, but I would miss that he's there for. And he, my current coach really is there for my driver primarily, but you know, he's there to also challenge me occasionally, but I'm pretty stubborn. And and because of my history where I got so lost and the thing with me is I know where I don't want to go back to. So I really have no vision of what I want it to look like, but I bloody well know what I don't want it to look and feel like. And that can be a great thing, but it, it can also be a bad thing, I suspect, you know, because you to move forward, you have to move into the unknown to some degree. And if I'm relying so much so heavily on what I've done in the past that provided me with success, then there is an element of restrictiveness there. But at the same time, I look at guys like Jim Furyk or Sergio, and I think to myself, there must be a pattern they've worked on for decades, and, and they must have had the same doubts. But over time, as you master a pattern and you get better and better, you just don't know how much potential that has. So that's really the journey I've been on, and that's the journey I'm still on. I want to keep my swing feels the same. I want to keep my two drills the same. But I have to reflect all the time as what does a great week look like compared to a bad week? What was the difference? And then me and my coach have to examine that and obviously then try and make sure you you improve on those things and you do the good things more regularly than the bad things, obviously. 
yeah, my mind's blown. I'm thinking to myself, holy shit, where do I go from here? You know, I asked you a two-part question that was really complex that I lost you in asking you the question. And then there's so many threads that we can pull on from your answer there. I want to go back and pull on the first piece, which is that metaphor of filling up your trolley or for the American listeners, the shopping cart. And that's just such a beautiful metaphor that you used. And you spoke to two things. And if you don't mind, I'm going to ask you to specifically, can you illustrate what those two things in your shopping cart or those two drills that you go back to that serve as your, uh, your rocks, your foundation? Yeah, sure. So now we are going to get technical. So um, the golf kings <laughs> might enjoy this one. Um, so the first one was, was a left arm drill. So I had an issue going back a while where I'd constantly see my club float across the line at the top. And me and Mike, my old coach, would always work on folding the right elbow better to stop that. And for years, I would work on it and still not improve it. And I thought to myself, well, hang on a minute. Clearly, this isn't the right way for me to do it. So I changed my focus and focused on my left arm, so lead arm for me in the golf swing, which I've come to realize and really think and believe is by far the most important arm out of the two in the golf swing. So I thought about it and I spoke to Mike and, and I came up with a drill that really I would get into a, a posture where I stand quite over the ball. I would let my left arm hang. I would rotate it kind of internally on itself, which is a little strange and maybe not that necessary. But And then I would work it under my chest and up and away and create lots of width. And what I found over a, per- a short period of time was I stopped seeing that club work across the line and actually it began to work laid off a fraction at the top. And when instantaneously I went from well, I went from struggling to hitting my irons in particular just unbelievably well. I mean, my iron play mid mid part through to the end of 2017 was incredible, almost as a direct result of that drill. And it gave me a couple of, it just did a couple of great things for my backswing, which then in turn just changed my downswing. It changed what the ball did. It changed the way I responded from the top, which was another fascinating lesson and something I always try to work back towards. You know, when I see my swing float across the line or too much knee bend, the way that responds in transition causes me a lot of problems. So I like to see my swing work, if anything, a bit laid off because I know the club tends to get thrown out a little more. Club head tends to get thrown out a little more into delivery, which gives me great control with my irons and and my three wood. And it can throw up some issues with my driver, but obviously that's the relationship that we have to manage with players as players. The other one is what I call a reroute drill, which I just thought about. And, you know, I had this pattern that I was seeing in my swing where I would over rotate initially in the back swing with everything, or particularly my torso and hips, and it would send the club a bit deep and then it would work a bit up, which would also encourage it to maybe work across the line. And then it would, it would be, if anything, an over the top kind of pattern, arm pattern. So I just completely reversed that, you know, I, I would set the ball, set the club up the other side, the outside of the ball, work my arms up to the top and think to myself, well, I wouldn't think actually, I'd just feel that. How am I going to hit, for me to hit this golf ball, my arms have to work on the inside. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to try and hit fades having to do this. So I had to hit the golf ball, which requires my arms to come deeper and transition. And then I'd have to rotate my hips a ton just before I hit the ball so that I could start that ball left and fade it, if that makes sense. So I'm, I'm basically hitting an into-in fade, which would be, you know, the dream move. And over time, that gave me a very, very strong feeling. And that's something I've played with a lot now uh, in the last year or so and had some good success with also. Now, what's interesting, I had this little chat recently with Nick Doherty about swing thoughts and swing feelings, because I think it's important to differentiate between the two. And I take my reroute draw, for example, is I think about that drill. I think about what's happening in my golf swing. What do I need to see for it to get better? And so I come up with a drill like the reroute drill for me. But then when I'm doing the drill, it's giving me a feeling and it's the feeling that I take into the golf shot. And that's so important because, you know, people talk about having too many swing thoughts. So for me, I might look extremely technical to the onlooker because of some of the drills and the routines I have, but actually all I'm thinking of, all I'm feeling in my golf swing is one feeling in often in transition. And that is a very simple thing to feel. And so, you know, you, you, there's this progression of thinking of something, turning into a feeling and then using the feeling under pressure on a golf course and looking at the feedback and how it all works under pressure, under tournament pressure, because it changes. And, you know, it's this constant feedback loop. So that was really the journey I was on with the two drills. 
So you went into a bunch of technical information right there and then synthesized that into and, and made a really important differentiation between the swing thoughts and the explicit movements that you were trying to make into something that you can go play with into something that's more like a sensation. And as I hear you talk about the swing that, that requires, I mean, you're, you're very well informed. And it makes me think of something that I wanted to bring up to you was you've heard it been said that to be a really, really good player it might be helpful if you're on one side of the spectrum as far as intellect goes. So I'm, I'm thinking about guys like you know you and Eduardo and and Phil and and like Justin Rose, who I feel like can take all this complex information and then distill it into something that can be usable and they can still perform at a high level. I'm curious to hear your take on what you feel like the benefits are, and then maybe what the when that intellect can be of a detriment, and you can be on the wrong side of that. And, and maybe uh, better served to be on the other side of the spectrum. Yeah, it does come up a lot, this. Uh, and, I, and I don't know whether ultimately it reflects your true nature and you find that or whether it's more a product of the coaching you receive some junctures in your career. And I'm tempted to say it's somewhere in between the two, but certainly the latter will be of high importance. And, you know, I remember having a shot in Morocco one year. I was really struggling at this point. And I hit one and I had to hit a provisional and my caddy said, Ed, just stop thinking. Just, I don't want you not to think. I was like, okay, I'm not going to think or feel anything on this golf shot. I'm going to tee it up with a driver. And I'm just going to hit the ball. And it went so far right. And I said, I just can't do that. And that's my issue. So it, beca- it became the thing for me. And what I kind of described a minute ago was I then realized I had to go through the process of actually thinking about it for myself. And so, you know, there's really only one of two ways you can be totally rec- or pretty reliant on the coach and go out there and do what he says or wants you to do and and not think about it too much and have great success. Of course that happens or be somewhere like where I am now, where you've had to take a lot more ownership and then you really, you know, you've signed that contract. And for me, they just, I'm so far down the rabbit hole at this point that, that, I mean, I can't look back and see the light, you know, it's like these stranger things. I'm in the upside down world and I need to live down there for a while. And, um, you know, that that's just all I can do now. And so it requires a lot of thought and obviously yet yeah, bloody hell there are times when I wish I, I wasn't this way inclined now but I have really have no choice and and also you know the better I think the better I do this stuff I do see correlation between the better I play I mean when I played to my best golf through 2018 I was on a different kind of diet my remember my brain function at the time was unbelievable I was thinking a lot and I played some great golf and I prefer to be that way because I know I have to be that way I don't want brain fog I don't want to be struggling to figure things out you know I, I have to be able to so that might contradict a bit what happened to Carnoustie on the final day but um generally speaking that's the case for me so um yeah you know I think I'm I'm already too far gone Corey and and I have no choice at this point other than to make it work and of course for me then you know it's like anyone who's had a, a serious problem in a particular part of the game. So for me, it was with the driver and it would be a, you know, I'd get to the top of my swing and have this massive gremlin. And even now it occasionally happens where you just get this very strong feeling of what it felt like to hit it 50 yards right, to hit it out of bounds on a hole that you should never do. And I see it happening with lots of very good players across all kinds of all aspects of the game. And you know, you want to avoid that, right? It's like, I've, I think I mentioned this to you in the past. It's now a case of just keeping the monsters little. The monsters are always trying to grow. That's why golf's so hard. You know, there's always these little gremlins and these monsters that just want to pop out. And if you, if you, if they go unchecked, they become big monsters and they can ruin your game. And so you've got to be on top of all of that. And that's where I try to live. And, uh, and I keep very close eye on, you know, for instance, for me, I don't worry too much about my chipping. I've never experienced any issues with the chipping or the short irons or even putting. So, you know, I, I don't keep as much an eye on that, but when it comes to my driver, I'm very aware of, Oh, what did that swing feel like off that tee? How much did I think about it? How much was the pressure there? What, did I get a yippy kind of sensation? And if I did, it doesn't mean, well, that's it. It means there's a reason for that. And often I associate it back to a technical reason. And it's just, you know, you then have to go back and make sure that you're living on the right side of the dangerous line. But um, it's a puzzle. Here at Altus, we are proud partners of Tyless, and we want to quickly tell you about our favorite irons. Cam and I, along with many of our clients at Altus, are gaming the Titleist T-Series, the engineering ingenuity that has made Titleist the long-standing number one iron on the PGA Tour, delivers three strikingly new iron designs as part of the Titleist T-Series. Powered by breakthrough technology, including max impact for maximum speed and distance control across the face, 
The new T-Series T100, T200, and T300 models offer a combination of power, performance, playability, and feel, unlike anything Titleist has ever designed. Visit Titleist.com to learn more about the T-Series irons today. We could jump into a theoretical conversation about that term you just described, the yips, and I'm just going to offer an opinion out there for you and the listeners and bounce it off you and see if you agree or disagree that that anticipatory control tendency, what you feel is that momentary adjustment. And I I prefer to think of it as more of a superpower. It's your brain recognizing that something's not quite right in this movement, and it's trying to recover a position that's by some measure, and it only needs to be a small amount, doesn't it? Millimeter or two in contact or half a degree of face alignment at the bottom of the swing for things to go awry. And your brain recognizes that or a great player's brain recognizes that. And so it does serve as signal. It serves as feedback that things are going off track. What are your thoughts on that? I think that's uh, pretty accurate. You know, I've not thought about it quite as deeply as that, but I have thought about it to the extent that I don't, I mean, people always say you've got the yips. It's a psychological problem. And that's true, but that doesn't mean you get out of it via psychology. Actually, I'm argue you get out of it via technique and then you work your way back out. Obviously where golf is so difficult is it takes a week to create a monster and a year to get rid of it, but it requires a lot of patience and a lot of resilience, quite frankly. And and it goes back to Tiger. I remember a few years ago when Tiger started chipping badly and everyone was like, he's got the yips. And I thought, remember saying to myself, that's madness. This is Tiger Woods. You don't just create the yips. This is a technical issue that is allowed to manifest probably for the first time in his career, actually. He's allowed it to manifest so that it became a psychological problem. And you know what it's like. You chip, you spend two or three weeks chipping into the grain on a couple of courses. I mean, I had it myself at Glen Eagles in 2014. I went and worked with Mike for some chipping at, the, at this point, and I couldn't hit the green. So the 18th at Glen Eagles, the green there is treacherous if you miss it. In fact, we'll remember from the Ryder Cup. Um, and I couldn't chip it onto the green. And I remember thinking to myself, my God, I've always been such a good chipper what's happening. And I just said to myself, I've got too technical with it. Go back, spend some time just chipping on your spot with yourself, feel it for your work it for yourself. And you know, you work your way back out of it and then you're fine, but it can take a lot longer to repair the damage. And, um, yeah, I've always been a believer since that really that, you know, it's a technical problem that manifests into something much bigger and psychological, but you need to strip it all back. And it's often just a technical issue. I want to switch gears a little bit because the, when we, when we last spoke, you had just won your first European tour event. And then just a few months later, you won again at the British Masters. And that really kind of vaulted you into the next tier of players as you were then able to play a top 50 schedule where you're getting into the majors and the WGCs and, and the players, which you, you took full advantage of. And I'd love to hear just your reflection on that experience and any lessons learned from kind of moving up to that next rung of the competitive ladder and what it taught you about yourself or even any any adaptations from a a schedule that was more based in America than it had been before. Yeah. So last year was um, really a very interesting year for me in my career. I mean, first and foremost, I I was coming off quite a significant back injury, actually, at the end of 2018, which set me back physically quite a bit. I surprised myself a little. Well, I surprised myself a lot with sawgrass, quite frankly, and and, and even heritage to a degree. I mean, I only came 16th at heritage, but I, I at no point when I was in America did I feel like I played very well. I was quite nervous in Mexico and the Arnold Palmer. So Arnold Palmer was my first ever PGA Tour event. And I had some nerves, which I just haven't felt for such a long time because I've grown to be so comfortable in Europe. So I was there telling myself, this is this is great because, you know, it's just nice to have these feelings again. It, it means that I'm in a scenario that, that really is different and it's going to test me and challenge me. And it did. And I was surprised at the relative success I had in a sh- short period of time out there also considering that I never felt like I played very well. Now, that is true. My short game at Sawgrass in particular was fantastic and it saved me. And also, I, I was pleased with the way I responded mentally when I got into a position like Sawgrass where, you know, even when I looked at my name in the leaderboard on 16-17, I, I didn't feel frightened. I didn't feel scared. I felt very comfortable and I enjoyed it. I really did enjoy being in that position in front of all of those people. So, um I loved it. And, and I, I just hope that I can go back to America 
like in a position I'm in now where physically I feel a lot better and, um, you know, I'd like my game to get back to where I know it can kind of be. And now I'd like to go back out there again and, and play some of the more regular events and test myself because it's, it's great. It's in the competition, as you know, is just so, so fantastic out there and courses also. So, um, it was a great, great time for me. Yeah. It must be an amazing experience to be tested in a new way and then have yourself, your performance validate what you feel like, you know, about yourself. I, I want to, you, you mentioned being a little bit nervous at Bay Hill or have feeling some nerves at Bay Hill. I was speaking to Phil Kenyon this morning, talking about some putting. And he told me, I said, Hey, I'm about to talk to Eddie here in a little bit. And he told me a, a story about him getting one over on you a little bit. Do you remember that? Can you tell that story? Yeah, that was, that was absolutely brilliant. Phil, as we all know, is just such a character um, for such a inhibited human being as he is. <laughs> we, uh, it, I think it was a Thursday at Arnold Palmer. I come onto the putting green to do my at the very beginning of my warm up. Just set up a drill station, put to a hole, and the green there is the putting green is pretty big, and there was there was just one flag in in the middle of the green. There was just one flag in, but I didn't think much of it. Um, I set my station up to that hole and i uh, i went and removed the flag and two minutes later phil comes over to me says eddie just so you know that flag has to stay in in honor of arnold palmer in memory of arnold palmer and i thought this is phil kenyon i thought he's, he's got to be winding me up but then i thought hang on a minute we're in america and you know this is the kind of shit that goes on in america i mean tradition <laughs> tradition is a thing in america like tradition in my mind isn't much of a thing so i'm i'm really torn at this point so i'm like what what do i do so i i went and put the flag back in and i was just it was on my mind for 5 minutes and charles howe came and putted next to me i thought charles will know so i went up to charles i said charles should this flag be in in honor of arnie you know is this a thing and he said absolutely not and uh, <laughs> it's rubbish. And then I thought, okay, Phil, Phil has got me. I knew he had me, but he did get me. And uh, yeah, it was just Phil playing a little joke. It didn't really ease the pressure. It made me feel like a bit more of a turnip, to be fair. But uh, no, it was it was nice. It was cool. So, in the spirit of practical jokes, what's the uh, what's how'd you get him back? You don't get Phil back. You uh, <laughs> you never get Phil back. He's too wise to it. Can we go back to that complex question I asked? The, it was a two-parter. It took me three minutes to ask it relative to coaching. So you've seen all sides. You've gone through this journey of finding yourself and building yourself. And part of that process is uh, using the help of a coach. And initially, you were the cart and the coach was filling you up. And now um, you're filling your own cart up. So what is it that you historically look for in a coach? And how would that inform advice to others on selecting a coach? This is a really tough question, obviously, um, because we're all on a varying degree of spectrum. I mean, I'd be fascinated to hear what Jordan's like on this front, but I know I'm very, I'm quite stubborn and I'm very single-minded and quite individually minded and, on this front. So, I, and I, like I said earlier, I, I know what, certainly I know what I don't want to see, what I don't want it to feel or look like. I know what I don't want to be able to achieve on the golf course. And I know what I do want to be able to achieve on the golf course. And for me, that is hitting a great six iron. You know, so if, if I'm really struggling with my mid irons, I'm pretty unhappy with things. If I'm flushing my mid irons and I can stiff it from 200 yards twice around, then I know I'm in a pretty good spot because all I've got to do is get it in place. So there's that element to it for me. And that drives a lot of the feedback in, and frankly, my mood as to what I'm going to give to the coach. Um, so uh, with Simon, you know, he has to, I think it's a tough job for him right now because I've come to him with a lot of baggage. I've come to him with, a lot of direction as well in terms of I know what I want and you know he's had to really mold his coaching around me and what's interesting also for Simon is his other client Jordan Smith he's worked with for years and has a very different relationship with Jordan to what he has with me in terms of coaching so for him it's probably actually fascinating and fantastic in terms of his career and to his credit I remember at the British Masters when I hit I hit the drive off the 18th hole on the Sunday I hit a really good drive it basically won me the tournament and that was a swing field that I'd worked on for six months with him. He had really helped me achieve that with my driver. And I saw him afterwards. I said, listen, that's great coaching. And thank you. You've given me one shot, you know, and it, but it's such an important shot for me and it's helped me win this golf tournament. So that, that is great coaching all the while, you know, he can achieve that. And I think have tremendous satisfaction from that while I'm still kind of driving the cart, if that makes sense. So, um, pushing the cart. So, uh, that's really where it, where it's at. I've got some very strong demands in terms of what I want to see and achieve with my iron play in particular. So that drives a lot of it for me. 
you mentioned that if you're not hitting that six iron really well, that there's some frustration that's there and a conversation that Cameron and I have been having a little bit lately. And we actually talked to Matt Wallace a couple weeks ago and we asked him this question where we try to pose the thought project of in your, if you're in the middle of a round, there is some frustration. There's even boiling over to anger to ask yourself, will anger actually make this situation better? And it kind of goes against what we've we've learned for a long time that we need to find the positives. But I know I've heard you joke plenty of times about breaking clubs. I mean, is there an occasion where that anger is actually the source of something that's helpful and something that spurs you on towards a narrower focus or re-motivates you towards the task at hand? Only with a delay. I mean, I've had that many times on a Tuesday or a Wednesday, and I had it at the British Masters when I won. The Wednesday in the Pro-Am with the worst I'd played for ages. Me and Mick were really at odds with one another, and I went to the range, did hundreds of drills, went and won the golf tournament. Sawgrass last year on the Tuesday, played the front nine, threw my five iron in the lake on like the fifth hole, and was so pissed off. Went home after nine holes, said I wasn't going to practice again that day. I pulled myself back out of bed at like 4 p.m. and spent like three hours down the bottom of the range at Sawgrass that Tuesday evening, went and came third. There's such a correlation with me when almost always my good best results have come off the back of massive frustration, but it's it's got a drag. It's got a two, three, four day drag. I mean, it's not that day. You know, if I feel that frustration, that's why I hate feeling that way. And I would use the word more lost as opposed to angry. I feel more lost and frustrated because there's a sense of resignation because I just know that I'm not going to get this in a day or two. This requires two to three days. So when I'm feeling like that on a Thursday at a golf tournament or a Friday, I just feel deeply dissatisfied and angry at myself that I've allowed the lead up to the event to clearly not be correct enough so that I'm feeling it right now. Does that make sense? And, and that really bothers me because it shows a lack of structure it shows a lack of a blueprint and i know i say i know i believe that the best players in the world just they not i don't have that all the time but they have it tighter than i would at that point and so that's how i feel quite often and listen i believe anger is a very very important thing frustration is the most important thing i i hate the saying patience is a virtue i think it's a load of rubbish 95 percent of the time i think you should always be demanding more and more but you've, you've also got to recognize when you've just not got it and I find it bloody hard to get it when I haven't got it on that day. (laughs) Even it's nice that you've got this library of instances where on the tail end of that frustration came some positive experiences. So it helps you kind of work through those times when they occur in the future and then understanding what kind of demeanor that you need to be in to perform your best. So if I was asking you the question, I was watching you when you were performing your very best. So let's take it when you're, you're winning or when you're top tinning, what would the outside observer notice about you from a physical perspective? Is there anything that differentiates you that you can identify and say, okay, actually when I play my best golf, I look like this. And so that then you can prime yourself to be more intentful in pursuing in future rounds. I don't know. I I think if you watch me almost always, I'm going to have hit a shot, pull a silly little grimace and then go back and do some drill. It would reflect the shot. I'm really satisfied with what I've just done. I will admire the odd brilliant shot, of course, but, uh, you know, I'm always fidgeting and working on a feel on something, you know, thinking about the future. So I would, I would hope that it wouldn't be too different. In fact, I'm speaking quite honestly, you, what you would see when I'm doing my playing my worst or had a run of bad golf is you'll just see resignation and, and, and it would probably look like I've given up and and I have in recent months and, and obviously it culminated with what happened in Turkey. It was a complete throwing in of the towel and that's not something I'm proud of and it's not something that I would say you should do, you know, but I've, I've had this discussion before with Laurie actually a number of times and I, and I admire professionals who can be in 50th position and still be trying their butt off. I admire it so much because I know I can't do it, but I think there is a positive to it. And that is that I never waste energy trying to do it. So I think the accumulative stress or energy that that kind of saves me does actually help me when I'm playing well and doing well and competing and, and in that environment. And, uh, and that might be a reason as to why when I have done well in my career, I have actually done really quite well. So when I make a cut, there's a pretty good chance I actually will have a top 10, but I will also miss a lot of cuts. And I think that is a great, probably a good insight into my character. And I, I've always been like that as a kid growing up, you know, and as I've grown older, I've just had to become mature or wise enough to know that when I do something stupid, 
let's not make it really stupid like you know david nalbandian where you kick someone and whatever um but obviously you know you're bringing it all together so um you spoke of stress and pressure and in all the conversations we have players highlight those biggest events the players championship the major championships and the team competitions the Ryder cup and if we were hypothetically or theorizing or playing it forward and you make the Ryder cup team in this next version if it was to be delayed or uh two years beyond that can you frame for the listeners how that would make you feel how important that would be to know that you made a Ryder cup team in your career i think there's probably a couple of caveats to it it would probably depend where it's being played and it would also depend on how I got there. So, you know, for me to play a Ryder Cup, well, to play my first Ryder Cup, I'm going to have to qualify. So that would give me confidence. It would mean, listen, you've played great golf. You're in this team. You really haven't got a whole lot to, to worry about. You're going out there against, even if it's the best player in the world at the time, it's 18 holes, you're playing well. You know, you can perform very well. So there would be, that would calm me down. Now, naturally, if you're playing in Europe as opposed to America, I think that would change things. And I suspect, I speculate that playing in America would obviously be harder for a European guy as a first timer than playing in, you know, Europe. So I think it depends a little bit on those two things as to how I would feel. And I don't actually suspect the most pressure I would ever feel in my career would be at a Ryder Cup, but that's obviously speculation and, and could well be proved wrong there. I still think the worst, some of the worst pressure is trying to make a cut as opposed to trying to win a golf tournament. When you're trying to win a golf tournament, you're usually very much in the moment your body is responding very well to what you want it to do. Things are moving well. So you just have to trust that. And barring a disaster or something that throws you way out of rhythm, which is kind of something you always pray doesn't happen. And listen, obviously, I watched the Masters back a few years ago when that happened to Jordan at 12. I mean, if ever there is an example of that happening, it's there. And I, you know, Jordan is one of the most strongest minds ever to play the game. And you could see how much how hard that was for him then so it doesn't matter how strong you are mentally you kind of hope and pray those those moments just avoid you <laughs> during those periods I, mean, I remember playing the us open in 2017 and i came like 16th which at the time for me was an amazing result played with sergio on the sunday i was at limited starts i knew it was a massive sunday for me and if i could have a really good result it was basically going to secure my card for the year after having just lost it the year before and i remember walking off that course feeling coming 16th for that week and that's as proud as i felt maybe ever walking off a golf course because i the whole cause of just the whole what it meant what i knew it meant and there was a lot riding on that day so um and i hadn't had the recent history that i've had up to this point so you know i was really nothing to draw on but playing golf and the kind of the stress and the pressure i always feel like when you're up there and you're trying to win a golf tournament even if it's a massive tournament you know you can put certain things out of your mind you can trust yourself you can trust your feelings that you've had that have led to this great stuff and you can go do it trying to make a cut when you're on the mark is is horrible because you're, you're playing pretty poorly and uh you're trying to desperately make a cut so um i always kind of don't like that you mentioned that you'd have to earn your way on on that first Ryder Cup team. And the way things look right now, I don't know that that's going to be possible. I feel like there's going to be a lot of selections and that you look at, at the qualification list right now and it looks much different than it did and the team looks much different than it did in Paris. So who knows who's on that team? But let's say you make that team in September. Who are you most excited about playing against in a singles match on the U.S. side? And why is it Bryson? <laughs> Oh God, I kind of pray it wouldn't be Bryson or Patrick Reed. Um, it's a tough one for me because I think about some of these kind of proxy relationships I've built because of my stupid Twitter, whether it's with Bryson or Patrick, although I haven't really said a lot to Patrick on Twitter and he's blocked me, so I, I can't say much now, or whether it's Matt Kuchar and some of the ribbing that I've kind of given him behind his back. You know, these types of relationships I've built with these guys, I, I'm a very much aware at some point down the road could lead to a in inverted commas here, a tasty matchup, let's say. And I kind of worry because I know I've alluded to how competitive I feel I am. Um, but sometimes I'm I'm very uncompetitive. And I see some guys who I just think are ruthlessly competitive to the point where, and actually it's not, I wouldn't even have to speculate this, we now know it because of footage, they will do anything to win. And I think to myself, my God, that that's such an absence of thought that's such an absence of objective understanding and perspective of the world that i can i don't think i can do what he's just done so i'm aware that he's a bit of a different there are some different animals and and so i i just bring it back to the conclusion that if i was to play these guys whoever it would be 
I would just have to make sure I play bloody well and, um, you know, try and beat them with golf as opposed to beat them with mindset or beat them with this or blah, blah, blah. You know, you, there's, there's ways you can play great golf, obviously, and, and you can do it in different ways. As you came over and played more American events, have there been any uh, awkward interactions on ranges or anywhere else in a, at a player dining? I'm trying to provoke you into something yeah. nice and provocative here. <laughs> well, I have a story with Bryson um, at Mexico. It does contain a very strong swear word, but uh, I don't know what you're, I don't know what your bleeping out policy is. Well, yeah, but we'll, we'll bleep it we out could just use the dogs, your legal team. To bleep it out. <laughs> They're busy. They're busy at the moment. I tell you, the shutdown hasn't affected them. <laughs> No, generally I got on absolutely, I got on great with everyone. And um, the story with Bryson was playing at Mexico, the WGC last year. And this was the week where on the Thursday he had made no birdies and putted poorly and come onto the putting green afterwards and slammed his putter into the green. And it was caught on, it was caught on camera. And, you know, as you can imagine, as you probably remember seeing, he got a load of abuse on Twitter for that. Now I got drawn out with him on the Sunday with him and Alex Noren and uh, literally walking down the first or second hole, I'm just walking with him and Alex's caddy, who was Warney at the time. And I said to Bryson, you know, Bryson, have you been on Twitter this week? Knowing he probably hasn't. And if he has, well, then, okay. He said, oh, God, God, no, God, no, I wouldn't have done that. I said, well, that's a shame because you uh, wouldn't have seen what I'd said to you then. And he said, what did you say? And I just said, you're a cunt. <laughs> and, uh, and, and I said it very dry like that. And... <laughs> Obviously, Warney knew that I was joking, but Bryson didn't. And, and he just looked at me and there was a two or three second pause and then he got it. And uh, I still don't think he really got it, but he got it. And, um, you know, <laughs> it was, I quite enjoyed last year. It was a number of occasions where I, I just, something came into my mind and then Ricky Gervais came into my mind with his whole win, lose or draw philosophy. And I, and I thought, fuck it you know you just say it because what does it matter like and uh my other memory and i and this is how i kind of come to really like people or know that i'm probably never going to have a relationship with somebody is you know like at the open in 2018 i'm playing with um i'm playing with kevin chapel and at the time he had joe cadding for him who now caddies for max homer joe with the great beard and uh kevin and joe walk onto the first tee never met them before hi kevin i'm eddie and then Joe introduced him. So, hi, Eddie, I'm Joe. And I just said, oh, hi, Joe. My brother's called Joe. He's also a wanker. <laughs> and uh, But then he got it. it within his, He just laughed. And then Kevin laughed. And, and we had a great two days. And I just thought, okay, right. And now someone's, we're on a similar wavelength. You know, I've set the tone. We're going to have fun. And, uh, you know, golf, you know what it's like. It's a long time being out there. It's stressful. And sometimes it's nice just to have a, the odd joke and a bit of fun. And playing in America was a great opportunity for me to just test my stupid sense of humor and uh, see if it worked. Those stories were beautiful. And I hesitate to even ask another question because that would be a perfect place to just stop the conversation, particularly with as much time as we've, we've uh, taken of yours this evening. But you speak of having fun and it's work, it's your passion, it's your job, but at the same time, you're good at having fun. So who's your favorite practice round, I guess, partner or four ball that you go out with on European tour? And then the opposite side of that is uh, who did you choose as your favorite practice round partner in America? I'm trying to remember if I even played a practice round in America. Um, <laughs> I think I played the odd nine. I hate practice rounds. Absolutely hate them. I think I actually, this is, I think, uh, I mean, I played 18 at the Masters last year before I played the tournament. Didn't bother playing. I played five holes at USPGA last year. They, they were just taking so long and I get so bored. Um, I quite, you know, there's been lots of tournaments, Carnoustie, I didn't bother. There's lots of big tournaments I haven't even played practice rounds. So, you know, I'm not a practice round kind of guy. But if I have the choice or if I'm planning it, I'll often plan to play with Jordan, who who my other coach, who my coach works with, uh, Laurie, Laurie Cantor, if he's around, you know, always try and get nine holes with him just because I know it's going to be a bit of fun and be often make it, you know, a bit competitive and play for dinner or whatever. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, but generally speaking, I, I hate practice rounds and I, I don't play very many of them. I leave it to the pro-ams and they're, they're bad enough, quite frankly. Yeah. How do you, how do you gain the, uh, course intelligence then? I mean, that's the first thing that leaps to my mind. Well, I don't, you know, I, um, <laughs> I just, I'm still a big believer that, you know, especially with how good the players are, if you've not got it on the range, if you've not got it. So for me, if, you know, if I've not got the six iron swing, let's say, then I don't think I can go out there and shoot six under. So my primary focus is always on my technique. Second to that will be energy levels. And third to that, it will be course knowledge. Unless the course demands 
really demands something from you in terms of to know. Now, you could argue Augusta is one like that, but then you've seen it so often on television that, and I have a caddy that, you know, has been out on tour for 30 years. So he has a lot of experience himself. So I rely on him in many ways, but I've had many good, really good results having not played practice round. What's the best example of a, of a golf course then that does require um, more rather than less holes played in a practice round, a, a course that is most challenging in the last 18 months that you felt like I needed to figure out? I'm trying to think of the many new ones I've played. I haven't really played that many new ones in that period. I mean, uh, you've got Augusta to a degree, I suppose, but even then it's it's pretty in front of you. You know, Beth Page was a new course, but again, that was that was pretty much in front of you, although there were some dog legs there that well, I mean, I, when you're carrying it 235 like I am, it doesn't really matter. You can't carry the bloody <laughs> things. But um, no, I, I, you put me on the spot and I can't think of a, a specific course. But, uh, you know, I think maybe think back to Hillside, actually, where the British Masters was last year. There were some holes there that were a bit blind and you know, definitely required a bit. But you don't often come across courses where you really have to have had lots of experience around. I, I really think that. And I, I often just use the analogy, I could play a golf tournament on the European Tour at my home golf club. And it really doesn't guarantee the fact, it doesn't guarantee I'm going to even make the cut because if I'm swinging it badly, because there's 155 other very good golfers, the chances are they'll beat me if I'm swinging it poorly. So, you know, you have to take care of the game and and the skill set. And, you know, you're just, you guys again would know, especially at the highest level, the skill set is just extraordinarily good. It's got to be. So if it isn't there, bloody get it there and then deal with the rest later on, I say. Well, we, we crossed the one hour mark, so we're going to let you off the hook here, but we know that we'll be able to hear more as we listen, continue to listen to the pepper pod. What is the release schedule like that? Are you going to keep it up even when tournaments go? Oh, well, uh, yeah, we're going to keep it up through the summer and through to the season. That's one thing. That's for sure. We usually record every Monday morning and Andrew edits and depending on the edit length, they usually come out Monday evenings. Uh, it's a very different podcast, obviously to this, you know, we don't talk in too much depth. I mean, it's a pretty lighthearted take on most things, it's, I would say. It's kind and, of about golf, I'd say, if I had to describe it. It's, it's yeah. mostly or, or somewhat about golf. But seriously, I could listen to it. I don't know if it's the if it's the accents or if it's the British sense of humor, but I, I could listen to it. I'm glad you're doing it, man. Well, thanks for that. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's come at a good time, I suppose. But uh, we did have to, we recorded one a couple of Sundays ago at like 4 p.m. And we'd both had like three coffees and I was just totally done and depressed with the situation that was going on. <laughs> yeah. And uh, we had Georgia Hall on the phone and we said, listen, Andrew, we've we got to we got just almost forget we did this and we'll do it again in the morning. So we make sure we record in the mornings at this point. And uh, yeah, it's a bit of fun. So, uh, Well, you were certainly on point in this conversation late in the evening. So certainly appreciate it. Well, it's a pleasure to be on as always, guys. I, I enjoy talking about this sort of stuff now and again. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you want to learn more about Altus Performance, go check out altusperformance.com. We're also pretty active on Instagram, so follow at Altus Performance, and you can also follow on Twitter at Team Altus. If you haven't done so, please hit the subscribe button wherever you listen to your podcast, leave a review, share it with others, and be sure to stay tuned to future episodes of Earn Your Edge. Thanks for listening.